Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Chat, where we're working to destroy and dismantle stereotypes about justice-impacted people. We can't wait for you to hear from our next guest, so stay tuned. We are here today with Brett Tolman, the Executive Director of Right on Crime. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. So very excited for this opportunity to talk to you, um, gotten to know more about your work and the things that you stand for on Twitter. We'll put your Twitter handle in here so everyone can follow you if they aren't already. Um, but I'd love to hear more about your background. Why write on crime? Why do you care about the criminal legal system and making sure that we improve it? Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Alicia, for having me on. I, you know, my journey to where I'm at now was one that I did not anticipate and and certainly could never have planned. Um, in fact, I, I don't think I planned any chapter of my professional career. Um, I, I sort of been fortunate and made some mistakes and then, you know, uh, then I guess blessed in other ways to have really meaningful jobs. But I, you know, I was a young kid that um, <clears throat> I uh, struggled in school and uh, it was so bad. Uh, my reading skills were so poor that um, my mother actually put us all in different elementary schools be so that I didn't feel bad uh, that I was in the um, in the lowest level um, learning. And I, I guess I took that personally. And uh, I remember having a conversation with my father, who was a former, you know, peace officer from Los Angeles and, you know, real law and order, um, you know, conservative. And uh, he threw a book at me once and said, uh, if you could read this book, you can you can accomplish anything. And it was a law book that he had. And I guess that's where I decided I was going to be a lawyer, because if I could be a lawyer, I, I might be smart. And uh, so I, I went on that journey, but, you know, <clears throat> to get there, there was a couple of pivotal moments that I think fa uh, sort of um, fashioned my, my career. One of which is, you know, my family, was, we, were, we were victims of a pretty horrific crime. My sister was kidnapped and raped in college. And, uh, you know, I was about 12 years old and my father and I looked for the perpetrators and uh, they were never brought to justice. And very devastating impact obviously on my sister and you know i think that's where i first knew that you know i wanted to put bad guys in jail so i was going to become a prosecutor and i did and um i did that for over a decade and uh, i then you know worked in the senate and and worked on drafting laws and worked on a lot of criminal laws and but the one thing I, I just did not anticipate, um, and I'm very proud of the work that I did as a prosecutor, although, um, you know, my, my last case, for example, was the uh, kidnappers of Elizabeth Smart. And, uh, you know, I knew that they, you know, he was an individual that was going to harm children if he, he was out. And so I, I was proud of that work. And my sister actually helped me, you know, work and interact with Elizabeth in a, in a way that was, you know, more productive because uh, she could help me understand a lot of what she went through. And, and my sister's doing great today, but, um, you know, in the process of, of working as a prosecutor for a decade, and um, I started to really get to know a lot of the shortcomings of the criminal justice system. And uh, I had a couple of pivotal cases that changed my perspective. And, uh, it, it's it's funny because um, when you work for the government, when you're an assistant U.S. attorney or you're a prosecutor, 
you actually can get the misimpression that you're a, a terrific lawyer, that you're brilliant. And because the cards are so stacked in favor of the government that I never lost. You know, I went into court and, and it seemed... So when I got out of being a prosecutor and I became a defense attorney um, representing individuals, I started losing a lot and it was uh, eye-opening. And I got to see the justice system in a much more, uh, I guess, brighter light and uh, critical way. And it was a persuasive Texan that would approach me many, many years uh, later and ask me to be the executive director of Right on Crime. And I never thought I would be doing that because it's a nonprofit. It's uh, you, you certainly don't make as much money, but I've never been more fulfilled in my career. Um, you know, our our aim is to change the criminal justice system so that we improve it. We lower recidivism. We lower the crime rate without compromising public safety and and never forgetting victims like my sister. And you know, my goal is to try to bring conservatives to a, a, an aha moment where they recognize that the the um, criminal justice system is largely been held unaccountable and there's virtually no transparency and. It's ironic because conservatives are the ones that are supposed to be so concerned about holding the government accountable. And uh, so that's that's the mission that I'm on. I, I love it. And uh, I, I think in the end, it, it you know, my goal is that by improving the criminal justice system, we actually will decrease the number of victims that are out there and that will lower the crime rates and, and people can have more confidence that their government is actually, you know, living up to that most important mandate to, to protect the community. Thank you so much for that. The very thoughtful, you know, background and going into like how you were raised and, you know, your father's influence on, you know, saying if you can read this, then, you know, you can do yeah. anything. And, and, you know, taking your family experience and using it as something to passionately drive you towards making change for the right, but then also being very aware and not blinded to things where there may be issues and room for improvement. So um, I appreciate that. I appreciate the work that you do. I know that the right is very happy and, and you know, glad to see you as the executive director of Right on Crime and others as well. And, and so such a good role and position for, and platform for you to be in. Um, I'd love Thank to, you. yeah, absolutely. I'd love to kind of hone in a little bit more as far as when you said that you were working as a prosecutor and, um, for the Senate that you were seeing that you were winning a lot and that there was that um, you lost a lot more as a defense attorney. And can you hone in on that? Is that because those that are being accused are all guilty or you made it, you implied that there might be some kind of actual cards stacked against um, folks that are being facing charges. And is that something that you can dig into a little bit with our listeners? Yeah, you know, you one in three Americans has a criminal record in this country right now. And, um, you know, those range from, you know, very serious felonies to, you know, minor criminal infractions, obviously, but it's still a criminal record. And so the justice system is is impacting everyone. What I didn't appreciate was there is no real presumption of innocence in this country. We, we do not have that. From the day you're investigated, you're presumed guilty from the day you get charged, the public begins to see you as guilty. 
And then the, the, the legal rules that are in place, so your criminal laws and statutes and procedural rules, they all are in favor of the government with one exception, and that being your, your Fourth, Fifth, and Sixth Amendment rights. But you don't even get to exercise those until you're already in the crosshairs and presumed to be guilty. And so when I, you know, I have had cases where I represented an individual who um, was 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 accused of fraud, of massive fraud. Victims of the fraud actually testified uh, about my client having given up his own personal uh, assets to try to help them, and they didn't blame him for, you know, uh, for for the the fraud. He was convicted and sentenced to an enormously long sentence. I, I've had individuals that self reported violations in their company to later be sentenced to 27 years in federal prison. Um, and, and so you start, and these add up, I could, you could go on and on and on about the instances of individuals and families that are absolutely crushed by the justice system. This is not, in my opinion, to imply that we don't need criminal laws. We absolutely do. There are dangerous, evil people out there, and those are the ones that we should be devoting our most precious resources, you know, in tax dollars, in government agency investigations, and incarceration, the ones that we're afraid of, the ones that will hurt and harm others. What I've seen is that um, it's, it's much it's much more complex than that. And what we have done is increased. I mean, you take, for example, in Reagan's years, there were three to 4,000 federal criminal statutes. Today, there's over 330,000 criminal statutes and regulations with criminal penalties. We have exploded the criminal law because Politicians are leaping over themselves, whether they're conservative or, or, or progressive, they're leaping over themselves to show that they are tougher on a particular crime. And, and so they pass legislation, and we've just done that nonstop as the only solution to try to deal with crime. And so now we have this over-incarceration problem, and we have – so, I, I, you know, it's a little long-winded to, to response, but I, I think – it's complicated as to why anybody starts to to really work in this area, um, but at, at the heart of it, it's it's pretty simple. I always say that people don't care about the criminal justice system until it cares about them, and now one in three Americans it's cared about, and and that's that's concerning, and and it shows that we're failing. We have a seventy percent recidivism rate uh, in this country generally, and. There's not a company out there in the world that would survive with 70% failure rate. Absolutely. No, thank you for diving into that more. And, you know, I know, like, obviously, it's something you're passionate about. And I think a lot of people are passionate about because, like you said, the victim safety, we don't want to see people getting hurt. And so if we mm -hmm. know that it's not working. We want to do something different. We have one in three people that have a criminal record. And you're saying the only people we should be focusing on I hear you saying are people that we're afraid of and potentially this explosion of laws might mean we're afraid of too many people. I mean, maybe there's some core things that we're getting at that, you know, we've potentially moved away from talking to our neighbors and things like that a little bit. I don't know mm -hmm. what your mm -hmm. thoughts are on that. I do have more of a technical question for you, though, as far as with you mentioned the fourth, fifth and sixth amendments um, are, is that like 
the government's burden to prove that they didn't violate that? Is that why those are rights that aren't stacked against somebody? Well, it's, it, yeah, there's, they're meant, you know, the Fourth Amendment and the Fifth and the Sixth, they're all meant to try to protect an individual from, you know, when the government wants to come after them. So you get a protection against an unlawful search and seizure and, and you, you get to confront your witnesses, you get a jury of, of your peers. And so in a vacuum, you read those and you say, okay, these are, these are important protections. And they clearly are. They're very important. They do distinguish our justice system from many others. However, we have, we've basically marginalized the value of those because it's way, way late in the, in the, in the, um, the, the criminal justice system that those protections come out. And so I, I look at um, many of the cases that I did, Alicia, I, you know, at the time, I thought, you know, I had impeccable judgment, I was making all the right decisions as a prosecutor. Um, and then I came across a case that shook me, completely shook me. I, I was 100% convinced I had the right guy who had committed a series of robberies. And I, I mean, I was so convinced I had the right guy that, um, you know, I, when, when I was asked by the, the defendant to meet with him, you know, I thought it was a, a, a ploy or, or something. And cause you rarely have that as a prosecutor, but we went into that room, me and an FBI agent, and we sat down with this guy and he confessed to multiple, multiple robberies. And then he said, I did not commit this one. And you know, it, it really was, it stuck in my head and I walked out and I said to the FBI agent, are you concerned about that? And he said, no, I think he's just scared. He's going to get a longer sentence. And I think he's just, and I said, will you just do me a favor and reinvestigate this? Like you never had seen anything and just re reinvestigate it. And um, he did. And we had the wrong guy. And we had already presented it to the grand jury and the grand jury had, you know, already brought back an indictment and we were on the precipice of, of convicting this guy and we had the wrong one. And so uh, that was the first time I started to think about um, the criminal justice system and the failings of the criminal justice system and, and I guess humbling myself to understand and appreciate that there are problems that need to be addressed. I appreciate you sharing that, you know, and just saying there are, in fact, holes, because I think that, you know, it's it can get really easy for um, folks who haven't been directly impacted, whether that's through victimization, family incarceration or personal incarceration to kind of assume that everybody that's, you know, alleged that they've done something has actually done it. Like, how could mm -hmm. you be? And I heard that a lot in law school as well, where people were like, well, these rights don't really matter because nobody's looking at people that aren't doing things. And you're just gave one example of probably <laughs> you said, this is the first time. So there were other examples I'm presuming. There are. Yep. So yep. yeah, thank you for that. Thank you. And so mobilizing the right, wh why, why is this important to mobilize the right on, on this? Why did you choose to transition from, you know, government work to an NGO and NGO stands for a non-government agency, um, What's the importance of that to you? 
You know, I, I was I was working in a law firm. I had been uh, a federal prosecutor, and then I was uh, President Bush made me the U.S. attorney, and I did that for four years. And you know, you know, a lot of times you leave that platform and run for political office. And I did have some, you know, some pressure to run for the Senate or for the House or some position here in in Utah. Um, but I <clears throat> I just really resisted that. I I wanted to. I wanted to be a lawyer still. I wanted to be in the courtroom and make arguments. And uh, so I did that. And um, the money is is good and uh, the work is exhausting. But I came across a couple of cases that came to me, one of whom was um, I referenced earlier. It was a businessman that self-reported that he had immigration uh, violations in his company, and he reported them. And what happened after that is one of the, the the biggest disasters in a criminal case that I've ever seen. The government wanted him to plead guilty. Um, there's a presumption that you don't charge people that self-report. So they were violating their internal policies from the very beginning. They manipulated and abused the grand jury system and went back seven times adding charges. In the end, they they prosecuted him and tried him on a bank fraud that had nothing to do with what they initially were investigating him for. And no banks were complaining and nobody had ever not been paid on any loans. So I watched it up close and I watched this, you know, this individual get sentenced to 27 years. And I thought to myself, I'm so limited in exposing what is going on by just simply being the attorney of record um, on a particular case and trying to make an argument it's it was emotionally satisfying when you when you win or you convince a judge but the public didn't know about this case the 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 national you know elected officials didn't know and so that was one in which i started to feel there was a i needed a I needed a larger megaphone. I needed to be able to try to expose, you know, abuse. Now, I have great respect for, you know, the men and women who prosecute, who are in law enforcement. Um, you know, I'm, but I'm sorry, there are so many problems in the criminal justice system that have gone ignored that, that we have increased power to prosecutors to such a degree that you cannot hold them accountable even when they commit crimes themselves to pursue their 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 interests that's how bad it is in this country and and anybody will tell you if they have experienced the criminal justice system they see those failings those broken aspects um we should be able to fix those and talk about those and expose all of that and corruption and and failings and and all of that without um, compromising what the underlying purpose of a of a criminal justice system is, is which is to protect citizens from from harm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I appreciate you, you know, bringing bringing all of that back around and talking about accountability too, and like what does accountability look like and what does it mean? And when you when you mentioned prosecutors kind of being immune from accountability, is that Qualified immunity is that applicable to prosecutors as well, um, or or yeah. dive into that a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. So a couple of things. Prosecutors have basically full immunity. Yeah, it, it's 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 almost not even qualified immunity. So y y you make a decision as a prosecutor. Now, if you find wrongdoing, so 
I'll give you just examples in my career that I've observed. I've observed a prosecutor threatening to charge a family member that didn't commit any crimes in order to get, you know, the target they wanted to, to plead guilty. I've seen them hide evidence. I've seen prosecutors illegally surveil targets and the attorneys of targets. I've seen pro prosecutors destroy evidence, manipulate witnesses, lie to the court. I mean, the list goes on and on. The reason you see all of that is because you can't hold them liable for any of the misconduct. Now, now those on the other side will say, well, you have the, you have the bar that can hold a, a, an attorney responsible. Well, your local bar and your state bar, they are very limited in their ability to hold prosecutors responsible for misconduct. In the criminal law, there's also not civil sanctions, so monetary sanctions. And when you, when you, if you were to file a lawsuit against me and I went into court and my, my attorneys you know, engaged in misconduct, the court could sanction me and my attorneys and for, for hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars, depending on the misconduct, and you would be the beneficiary of that. You can't do that in the criminal context. The judge has no tool that they can actually order civil sanctions against a, a criminal prosecutor. So you, you can't hold them account, accountable in the courtroom. You don't have any defense attorneys present or any um, judge present in grand juries. You don't have a, a bar, local bar, that can um, hold them ethically accountable. In the federal system, it's so bad that um, – they brought all of the ethics uh, investigations in-house. So your prosecutors control all of the ethics investigations. And then you have immunity, in which, which basically says if they're operating in their, their official capacity, you can't, you can't bring a lawsuit against them. So you tell me what would happen if you give government actors that much insulation. They fear nothing. So, so if, if they're inclined to, to, you know, skirt the rules or to, you know, do things that, um, you know, other attorneys would, would, you know, be held accountable for, they're going to do it. The stakes are so high also in criminal cases. There's a culture, and I'm very concerned about the culture that has developed in, in criminal law. The culture in the prosecutor's office is the convictions you you get rewarded for the length of time that someone gets sentenced you get you get applauded for there are even awards that are given out for the numbers of cases and the sentences that they secure that's that's a culture that is not driven to to seek justice it's a culture driven to incarcerate to prosecute and incarcerate yeah, I'm really glad that you touched on the culture piece there um, because it does, I mean, I know we can legislate, but like even with laws, although we do need to, and it sounds like you're saying there could potentially be some state laws, some federal law remedies that could, you know, if there's a political sure. will to take those on, right? Um, as well as, you know, some of the smaller policies at, you know, state bar organizations, but the culture piece, you know, even with laws, because I'm sure a lot of the things you mentioned 
are illegal, right? Destroying evidence. Right. These are illegal. So right. the, the culture is important. Do you see an office that's doing it well? If you don't answer that, that question, I totally understand. Or could you envision what that might look like? Yeah. I, and there's the other extreme, too, that's developing right now that's really hurting our cause. And that, that extreme is the really progressive DAs that are refusing to prosecute entire sections of crimes. And so then the public gets real nervous <clears throat> about that. And they're seeing all the, the media on, you know, the smash and grabs and the robberies and the insecurity on, on, on safety is rising. And so now we're back to having conversations about being really tough on crime. And what does that mean? That means, you know, lengthening out the sentences and establishing more criminal you know, statutes in order to to pursue more and incarcerate more. Well, that that formula has never worked. We have never once been able to prosecute our way out of crime. We have to use you know the certainty of prosecution as a deterrence for sure. That should be there. But until we are looking at different ways, and there are some people that are doing that, they're looking at different approaches and different ways. If we get ourselves out of that culture, out of that mindset, we'll start to see that there are some things that work. I, I cite a couple of examples, but one was an officer in St. Louis that, um, I think it was St. Louis, uh, many, many years ago. He was getting tired of arresting the same people. And so what he was doing was he he would get all the evidence, a drug dealer in the neighborhood, he'd gather all the evidence, he'd take the photos, he'd put the file together, and then he and the prosecutor would go sit down with the individual and his family that they were targeting and say, we're about to bring these charges. If you want to change your life right now, we'll not bring these charges. And they started to see a drastic decline in drug distribution in those neighborhoods and crime went down, you know, with it. I thought it was, but we don't reward, we don't reward people for entrepreneurship in, in the criminal justice system or for uh, big ideas. There's a prosecutor in California, and this is something that I want to pursue across the country, but it is a uh, prosecution initiated resentencing that a uh, very conservative prosecutor, they passed a law in California that said, hey, if a DA wants to, you don't have to, but if you want to identify some individuals that may have been prosecuted where their sentence wasn't appropriate or they've made extraordinary efforts while they've been incarcerated um, and to revisit, if you want to revisit that, you could file a motion to a judge to give them credit for time served and let them out. Prosecutor started it very, very conservatively, would only allow certain crimes to be considered, only did a few individuals. And what he found was a totally different culture developed in his office. They started to look at people more human. They started to identify individuals. And so far, they've expanded the program and they still have zero recidivism. Zero. So there, there are pockets of those. And I want to try to tell, you know, folks across the country, hey, if you really want to try something different, look what they did here and look what they did there. And that's the benefit of being a, a larger national organization is I can see what is working. There, There is hope and silver lining to a lot of the dark clouds that consume us when we think about the criminal justice system. 
Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for saying that. <laughs> and that sounds yeah. like a great program as well. Was it um, was it formed through state legislation or did the office? It was. It was. Okay. Yep. Yep. State legislation. It was an opt-in provision. They didn't require it. A lot of people criticized it at the beginning because they said, well, you're not allowing defense attorneys or defendants to actually file the motion. Well, something interesting happened. What happened is they started pushing, they started sending these to the prosecutor and the prosecutor was having to look at those. And instead of looking at an individual as, as guilty from the beginning, they had to start looking at them. You know, Have they made extraordinary efforts? Is there something wrong with their original case? Were they young and, and, and have they served a, a substantial part of their sentence? And, and you know, he he found that um, like his mandate was to just put people in jail and put them in jail for a long time. And he said he started to really change and it has impacted their community in such a positive way. So, you know, that's one that I'd love for a lot of the conservative states to to see prosecutors associations are not resisting it like they do so many other reforms. Um, and the biggest challenge we have in the conservative states is telling them that something good came out of California. <laughs> yeah i can imagine that but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is you know get it at one more state right yep, yep. this is california the only right now no no there's um so louisiana passed something similar okay. and texas is has passed one a version out of the house um and then there are a few other states that are working on it oregon passed it and i think I think there's really, if we can get a few of the conservative states to embrace it, I think it will, it will explode. And, yeah. you know, people start to see, and I, I, there's actually interest from conservative lawmakers on the federal side to do it nationally. Mm. Um, because in the federal system, there's no parole. Yeah. You, you have no parole, you have no early release, very little, you know, plea negotiation, and you serve 85% of your sentence. And so... A, this kind of a, a resentencing would would have a big impact. Great. That's great. Thank that's, you. That's my dog spinning at the door. That's <laughs> <laughs> um, so Chester. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for talking about the silver lining and the appearance from your dog as well. Um, <laughs> for those that aren't watching the video, there is a very cute dog spinning around <laughs> in the background. Um, <laughs> So I know we don't have too much time left, but I would love to just get into like at least one or a few people, you know, even if it's even if it's just one person you can think of that was a mentor to you throughout your life that really helped. I mean, you did mention your father and then, mm -hmm. you know, following that as you dove into this career that you said didn't have necessarily a clear route, a clear path, who is somebody that mentored you and what were the characteristics that they helped develop and bring out in you or characteristics that they had? Yeah, you know, there, there's really one individual that stands out, and his name um, was D. Benson, and he passed away a couple of years ago. He was a, a judge, a federal judge, and he was an adjunct professor, and, and we became friends. And I was one of his students, and we became friends, and I ended up clerking for him, and I uh, was supposed to do it just for six months and ended up doing it for over two years, and um, we became lifelong friends after that. And the reason why he was so, I, I guess, someone that, and what what really, uh, I think, caused me to, to look at him as a, as a mentor is 
he had his he had this incredible passion for the law and and was you know so bright and pushed me to my my limits in terms of my capabilities my research my writing my analytical skills but it wasn't really that 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 impressed me it was you know like one time we were in court and he was there listening in a in a sentencing and the government was was uh, pushing really hard for this extraordinarily long sentence and the judge sentenced him to the minimum that he could sentence them and after that case he he got the reputation and a nickname as minimum benson they used to call him and i remember confronting him and saying you know judge do you how do you how do you feel about that and and why um you seem to always you seem to always sentence at the lowest end of what you can sentence and he said two things there's two reasons why i do that he says one we've forgotten as a society how long two years in prison is and he said two one day i'll meet my maker and my hope is that he'll do the minimum punishment to me <laughs> and i it always stuck with me he he was a man of great quiet faith and compassion <clears throat> and and yet he had every reason to be you know arrogant based on his abilities and his intellect and and he wasn't and yet he taught me a young you know a young lawyer he taught me everything i needed in order to try to be a good good person while while being a lawyer which is a challenge and um you know it's a very very difficult profession and so for that I I'm grateful. He passed away from a, a he had a brain tumor and uh just very very sad but you know wonderful that I got to know him during my life. I'm sorry for your loss. I'm so glad that you had him in your life and that you shared a little bit, you know, about how he influenced you. I think that's amazing. So um yeah, thank you. I think every every lawyer, everyone in any profession if they could have one person looking out for them, you know, to to help them through their their career, uh, what a difference it would make. I I need to do more of that. I've tried, but um, I'll continue to try to do that. Thank you. Thank you for all you're doing. Uh, we really appreciate you. We appreciate your time today. And um, yeah, just thanks for being on the chat and talking talking with me. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Enjoyed it. With us for another episode of the chat we appreciate all of our listeners viewers and supporters if you want to know more about the uplift in the chat head over to our website at www.upliftmentors.org join our coalition drop us a donation or just spread some love and share this around with your friends and family